around uh, our church, and as I think about it and pray for it, uh, one of the things that I am thankful for are both our fathers and our mothers who are intentional, who are striving to raise their children in the Lord. It is uh, a blessing, and it is uh, an encouragement to me personally uh, and, and to our, our church. And I think there will be generations uh, affected by this church. And sometimes I think if you're not careful, you'll look at it and say, well, you know, whatever you might have to say about it. But at the end of the day, uh, we are passing down the faith, and that's being done here. And there's a heart to do that, a desire to do that, and it's inspiring uh, to think about the, uh, the, the multiplication kind of that's going on here. We're passing down uh, the faith here. And so I just encourage you to keep doing that and striving in that way. Uh, there's two things that I've, I've been thinking about lately, both in how we try to structure our church and um, in, in the way a, a family should be structured. And we talked about that this morning during the 9.30 hour, but there's two things that kind of come to my mind. One is, you know, there's like formal instruction, and the other is there's imitation. So you have instruction and imitation that kind of coincide together. And in the raising of a family and the leading of a family, you have, uh, you know, this, this, this idea of like there's formal times, like we talked about family worship, and then there's just living life with them. Both of those are needed. And, and you want to, uh, what you really desire is that uh, your children would come up seeing your life in such a way where they say, like, I can imitate that. They've talked about the faith, and then they've lived the faith. There's, there's this relationship between knowledge and practice, life and doctrine. And, and, I, and I think that is so essential uh, in, in, the, in the guiding of, of a family. And I, I do see that going on here. And I am so, it's such an encouragement. Because it's not just one of those things where, look, I've got five verses in my pocket. I'm going to throw those at you over and over. There's five verses. You memorize these. This will get you through. That's all you need for the Christian life, these five verses. It's not a mentality like that. Where it's like, hey, what do you know about your faith? I know this Bible verse. Okay. That's great. How, how does that impact your life? Well, it's going to get me to heaven. Okay. I, think about it however you want to. But at the end of the day, walking with the Lord is a all-of-life thing. And we, we are encouraging our families and our fathers to be both people that can instruct and talk about the faith and then live the faith and, and like relate that. So I just encourage you, man, keep doing that. Keep doing that. And um, if you're not, like, start. And, and I, I feel like today um, Eric did a really good job of saying, like, we're all starting somewhere, and you're not perfect. If your spouse thinks you're supposed to be perfect, if your kids think that, they're just misinformed. Teach them the Bible. They'll know you're not perfect. Right? And they're going to see that, and then you just say, well, good night. This is, uh, you're a mess. Bible says you are. You know? So then just, by God's grace, get up and move forward. And, and strive towards walking in a way to be pleasing to Him. So, that's Sermon 1. You like that? All right. Now I was going to say something else just real quick, because I uh, saw these the other day. Um, and uh, I asked... Uh, 
if, if they'd bring the, the family would bring these here. So, uh, the, you know, we do this fighter verse we read in service every week. You know that you can get these fighter verses. You can order them. So you could like put them on the table at dinner and you could go over them. So uh, that's helpful. There's also an app. So I just thought I'd mention that to you. Uh, you could do that. So that every night at dinner, if you wanted to just read over it, uh, it would it, it would be there, and it might stir some conversation and that kind of thing. So, okay, we're going to be reading from Psalm 70. If you would stand with me. Make haste, O God, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for direction and guidance. We ask for sensitivity. We ask for a, just a, a heart that's quick, quick to hear and to receive and to see what we can learn and to hunger and to thirst after you. And we know that sometimes trouble is the means that you use to bring sobriety, bring clarity. We ask you to work in us today to inspire our hearts, to move us to action. In Christ's name, amen. If you would... Just be seated and we'll start here. So in this psalm, Psalm 70, David prays for God to act quickly. It, it's, in a, it's, it's a very short uh, psalm. It's not long at all, but it's, it's act quickly. I need you to move quickly. I, I need you to change this moment right now. It's one of those psalms where you just say uh, everything else, you know, the, the methodical kind of things go out the window, and you move quickly. And so we see that in this psalm. You know, there, it's interesting. Sometimes when you do pray, and it was mentioned this morning, some people use uh, that, that acronym ACTS, uh, where it's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And they're moving through, and they start. And it's a good pattern for you uh, to remember because you think, I need a, sometimes it's good to have a pattern where you don't just automatically go to the supplication piece of like, this is what I need, you know, where God's like, you know, the genie in the bottle and he uh, has, you know, more, I don't know, you always can like, you know, rub the bottle and the genie will come out and answer and, you know, that kind of thing. And so it helps kind of fight against that. Uh, you think about the Lord's Prayer, some people use that as a model. It's a great model where Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray and it starts with word worship and then there's the allegiance kind of thing and you just kind of move through these steps and it kind of it covers a broad range of things, and, and that's helpful. It's good to be taught in that way, and we should teach people uh, to pray in, 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 in a methodical way as Jesus uh, taught that. It's, it is helpful. 
there are circumstances where, um, you know, the, you almost kind of, uh, you, you could get into a place where there is no other thing but like this need needs to be prayed for now. And uh, for some people, they go from crisis maybe to crisis, but uh, for, for many people, you say like a lot of my life is lived in, in more of a process. Just, it, it's just step by step by step, and you're just taking those steps. But there are days in life, and we don't know when those days will come or what it will look like, where the situation is so grave in a sense that you're just driven in that moment. Uh, to pray to the Lord and ask Him to act. And I think that's what we see this morning. And so I, I, I think maybe you just say, for you, you may be in one of those moments, or you may not be. Uh, for some of you this morning, if you were in that moment, you probably wouldn't be here. But then there are some of you here this morning, and I'm just not going to name names, that this week, I, I know there are these grave situations, and in those moments, you say there is no time but to, me- to mess around thinking about it. You just have to act, and you act in prayer. You're driven towards God, and you're driven towards God to say, Lord, I need you to work now. I need you to move now. I need you to change this situation now. I need you to act now. Now, Another thing just to kind of look at in this is uh, there aren't a lot of psalms that are repeated, but uh, Psalm 14 and 53 are, are, are repeated. Like you could go back and look at Psalm 14 and 53, and they're both uh, in, in the whole of the, the book of Psalms. And then Psalm 70, although there's differences with Psalm 40, uh, you will see that the latter part of Psalm uh, 40 is uh, verse 13 through 17 is found here in Psalm 70. And so I think it's just important just to, to note that and, and say, okay, and some people say, well, why is the first part omitted? Why did he not bring all of that over? I think, I think what's going on there is that there's this emphasis on now. Now. Like we need to, it's now. Move, quick, quick, quick. It's, it's a psalm that says, this is urgent. And, we, and, and we, he is begging God, you've got to move now. And you, you could think about that. You, maybe you've watched movies or you, you've uh, read books and, and you, you, you've seen like something maybe the enemy is encircling. You think, is, is something going to happen? Like if, if, the, if something doesn't change now, then there's no hope. It, it, it's always... A good writer or in a good movie, a lot of times you are led to the very edge of like you're on the edge of your seat going like, what's going to happen? And some of you have probably stayed up late saying, I've got to finish this so I can see this is one of those situations. So I think it's important just to see that. So there are three parts that we're going to look at and then kind of conclude it. But I just, in this urgent psalm, we're going to start first and just say, I want you to see how much trouble there really is as David sees it. And then we're going to kind of unpack the prayer a little bit. And then we're going to say, what is the foundational belief that he lives by? So we're, we're going to see all of those things and kind of think that through. So first, just his trouble with this, again, urgent psalm. You're going to, you, you notice here uh, in, in, in the very, I mean, as it starts, again, which makes it different than Psalm 40, 
He says, make haste. It's just where he starts. And, uh, you know, for me, one of the things I always think about the mother, and I mentioned this the other day, and I think you're going to think I sit around reading Pride and Prejudice, but I remember the, the, the daughter needs to, they have some unexpected visitors, and the daughter is not ready. She's not, uh, you know, ready to appear before them. And the mother's going, make haste, make haste. You know, and, and you're just like, and she's got this horrible voice in one of the movies that I watched. And I'm just like, every time I hear make haste, I'm like, oh, that lady. But it, it is one of those moments where you're saying, make haste, make haste. It's not something I would normally say. But it would be, it, it is this idea of the urgency of the moment. There is no time to wait. He's saying the situation is dire. God, you must act quickly or it will be too late. That's kind of the idea here. His enemies are mocking him, but you're, you might say, well, that's not that big of a deal, except for the fact that because they have him trapped and they are about to kill him, they are seeking his life. In verse 2 and 3 we see, they're delighting in his hurt. It's almost they've surrounded him again. And you've read these in these Psalms and you think, man, uh, David faced a lot of difficulty, and he did. He faced a lot of struggles, and he did. And you see that in this case. And so it is a dire situation. They've surrounded him, and his, his life is on the line. And, and you know, in David's life, this is just something I think is important to note. In David's life, uh, he spent a lot of time in trouble uh, w with people coming after him. And I think it might be important to say to you, and th this is some people's understanding of Christianity, and the way God works. If your life is going good, God is pleased. If your life is going bad, God is mad at you. So somebody that maybe is real successful in this life, they smile at you and say, we're really blessed of the Lord. And, 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 and it's like, we haven't had any trouble, no real sickness, plenty of money in the bank, jobs insane, best job ever. Family's doing well. Kids are winning all the awards at school. God's really blessed us. Right? And I, and I would just say to you, like, okay, but would you say the same if it was different? Would you say that if somebody in your family had cancer? Would you say that if you lost your job, lost your ability to do your job tomorrow? If you tie God's favor all the time with how well your life is going, you might want to stop and say, why is David, this king that's been blessed of the Lord, this king that has been like set apart by God like in a very unique way, God set his covenant love on him in a, in a very unique way, he's approved of him, He's called a man after God's own heart. And yet, you say, well, yeah, remember that sin of David? Be like, well, okay, prior to that, God did all those things, right? And so he is, he is one who's set apart by God and approved by God, and yet he faced a lot of trouble. Under God's favor, he faced a lot of trouble. What's up with that? How do you deal with that? I think you just have to say, in your life, you should not be surprised. If you are walking closely with the Lord and you experience 
difficulty. You are placed in difficult places. You, that, it, it should not be catch you off guard. God is not against his people because of trouble. That doesn't tell you that. John 15 says this. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. Because you're, but because you're not of the world, that I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So what's he saying? It, if you walk as a faithful disciple in this world, you should, you should expect trouble. It's not all easy. Not only the normal trouble of just being in this life with physical difficulties and all those kinds of things, but also uh, with trouble because of your spiritual commitment to the Lord. So there, there will be trouble. And I just think it's most important to say to you, prepare yourself for trouble. Just get in your mind. Now, you can't fully do so, but just get it in your mind. There will be trouble. God's working in the life of his people does not like uh, does not like separate them from trouble it actually he he takes them through trouble and you know when psalm 23 where it says that um the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me to beside still waters that's true but but he he also carries people into the valley of the shadow of death it, it, you, you just kind of have to balance in your mind God's plan for you, His favor upon you in this life does not look like ease and comfort all the time. It means that you will experience crisis, and in those crises, you should be moving towards, pro probably through your regular activities and your normal activities, you should be preparing yourself for that moment when everything goes wrong. And God doesn't leave you in that. He is actually guiding you through that. And so I think it's important. In that moment, though, when you find yourself there, what should you do? You should cry out to him, your deliverer. Verse 1 and verse 5. Make haste, O God, deliver me. O Lord, make, uh, make haste to help me. So I think it's important just to see that and to remind yourself of that. Your trouble could come at your work, at your home, with your health, with the world as in general, in the culture that you're living in, the society. All those things. Troubles could come from a lot of different places. And you just have to prepare and say to yourself, do not believe the lie. Do not believe this lie. That if you're walking with the Lord faithfully, you will not experience trouble. That is a lie. So you will experience trouble. You will be in difficult times and in difficult situations. And your only cry there is to run to the Lord and beg him, Lord, please move quickly. Now, so let's go from the trouble, the urgency of the psalm, the difficulties there. Someone's coming after him. They're surrounding him. And then you just see, let's just look at David's prayer just for a moment. And it's just important to understand the reason David can run to his God is because God is not, um, you ever met someone that's like, 
maybe they live in a state of kind of uh, making haste everywhere to go find, you know, everything's a, everything to them is like a red alert, right? Well, the problem is how many can they handle at one time, you know? It's kind of the whole plate thing. How many can you hold up in the air? Well, in this case, it's like with the Lord, when we see him in the scripture, he is seated on the throne, reigning as sovereign king. Some of you may have lived your whole life thinking, oh, I can run to this person. They are going to prop me up. They're going to rescue me. They're going to be there. And you say, well, hold on just a second. For how long? Uh, sometimes they get old. Sometimes they get too many plates in the air. Sometimes their attention's only able to focus on one thing or another. And if they're not able to see this is not a big deal and this is a big deal, it's, they're going to never be able to keep all of that. And so it's important just to say God is not that way. He is on the throne reigning. You can go to him because he actually will be prepared and capable of addressing this situation that you're in. He is not absent from the situation. He is the sovereign over the situation. He is reigning over the whole earth. So, I think it's important just to kind of go back and say, he prays for himself for quick deliverance. He is asking God, sometimes a prayer in that way, you might say, was well, that selfish? You'd be like, no, God wants you to come to him. Certainly, you could be a selfish prayer. But this situation, you see clearly, he is under great distress. He is experiencing great difficulty. And he personally prays, oh Lord, come and help me. Luther, speaking of this prayer, said, This prayer is the shield, spear, thunderbolt, and defense against every attack of fear, presumption, and lukewarmness. Make haste. Help me, Lord. And so I think it's just important to see it. Now, the other thing is, as you're moving through, you're thinking about this prayer, uh, we also see this prayer directed you know, towards his enemies as he prays. Look at verse 2 and 3. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. It's, um, they're mocking him. They're after him. Some of you might say, I don't understand how David can pray this way if Jesus said we should you should love your neighbor and, and, you know, he said, it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Is, are, those, are these in conflict? Because David, man, sometimes he'll pray a prayer and you'll think, man, I can't believe what he's prayed. And this is not the same kind of prayer as we have seen uh, in like what they call an imprecatory prayer where he's like, bring judgment on my enemies. But this is a type of judgment. David prays this. Just think about it in these verses. That those who seek his life would be brought to shame and confusion. David prays that those who delight in his hurt would be brought to dishonor. David prays that those who mock him by saying, Aha, aha, would turn back because of their shame. I, I, I would say there's a place for a prayer like this. And think in this way, he is praying for his enemies. He is praying for their good. 
And, and if you think of it in that way, you might say, well, okay, well, explain that. When you pray for your enemies' evil plans to be thwarted, is that not for their good? What happens to someone who does evil and attacks and goes after people and they get their way in that way? And then they go after the next person and the next person and the next person. He's praying, Lord, like, let their evil plans come to ruin. Let those be destroyed. Let them be stopped. These people who delight in hurt of others, and dis, and, and, let them be dishonored. Strip them of their place. Let them be checked. That, that's what he's saying. It, it is, it, so there is a prayer for like David's that would fit with the prayer that Jesus prayed. And certainly there are different times that you would pray different things, but it is good for him and good for them that their evil is checked. If in this moment you're praying, Lord, stop Putin. Stop him. Stop him from what he's doing. Is that good for him? Is that good for the country that he is leading? Is that good for the people that he's attacking? Is that good? Yes. So you have to stop and say, whatever you're dealing with in life, if we were sitting over there, and we're, we're, we're being attacked and we're praying, stop him. Stop him now. Stop. Cease him from moving forward. That is a prayer that would be not only for his good and the good for the nation that he is leading, but also for our good. When people continue to do evil, or when people are successful in doing evil, they will continue to do evil. I think one other thing just to kind of think about this, when you're thinking about Jesus enduring great difficulty, our King and Savior, you're reminded that one who could have stopped all those things endured pain and sorrow on our behalf. He was mocked. Listen to Matthew 27. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. You know, we, we can understand from this not only that the weight of the, what the Savior experienced for us, but we can also know that God's plan sometimes allows for wicked men to go unpunished for the moment. And I think that's important to say. God's plan sometimes is to let wickedness go unpunished for the moment. That is not forever. There will be a day of reckoning. There will be. And the Scripture says to leave room for the wrath of God. There will be a day where he will deal with sin forever. The evildoer will be punished. But he doesn't always relieve us of the trial and the struggle in that moment. And so we understand that too. That Jesus endured the cross 
because of the plan of God. God's plans were working out. But as we see it, and that's the thing, we do not see the big picture. As I can see it in the moment, when the trouble strikes, I immediately am, am like should be called upon or should be prompted to and should desire to run to the one who controls everything. Who is never slumbering or asleep. Who's always prepared. Who is always willing to hear. Who is always capable of acting. And so he goes to him. Within this prayer you also see, the prayer also points to the, to the righteous, to the people who are walking with the Lord. Um, he, he prays that they would delight in God. It, it's kind of an interesting uh, thing here. Look at verse 4. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. It is nice for him to know. He is not alone. David's not alone. He knows that. He knows that there are people like him that would experience great troubles. They're facing their own battles. They get tired and weary. They are encircled by the enemy. He knows that. He knows he's not alone. They are striving to live a godly life in the face of great difficulty and sin. That is your life. The reality is here this morning, there are people, some of you are, 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 are inside the middle of a trial, some of you come out, some of you kind of have grown to the place where you're thinking like, I haven't seen those things in a while, you've forgotten. Some of you next month will be facing something. The reality is, is that David is aware that there are people around him that need to learn and see and to savor God, and they are rejoicing in God and he wants them to be reminded uh, uh, of the Lord and he is reminded and he is praying for them to see and understand and to be reminded of God's deliverance. David evidently is not like where Elijah was if you remember when he had been into the thick of things with all those prophets of Baal and then he, um, he, he almost forgets that there's all these people that are too fighting and struggling and have not bowed the knee. And the Lord gives him the understanding that there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. There is something in the midst of this where David is, is praying, maybe as a way of reminding himself, but also to remind generations of people, God is great. He is our Savior, even in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of trouble, God is the one who rescues. God is great. We can trust Him. But also, he may even be saying this in, in this sense, Lord, rescue me so that the people that come behind me will say, He is great. Put that on display that you are a God who is all-powerful and that you are our great protector and Savior. So there are a variety of things to me that could come out of this. One is you keep pressing on into the greatness of God even if the suffering does not stop. And the other one is, is that the Lord uses sometimes your suffering that the people around may know that He is great, may see Him deliver you and prove to you that He is great. 
I do think if you read Hebrews 11 and 12, when you're reading that, you read all the way through Hebrews 11, you're all these names, and you say to yourself, not all these people survived. Not all these people holding on to God survived or lived or, you know, they didn't. And yet, they're surrounded, they're together in glory with God, ultimately saved, and they're a witness to you. And as you, with spiritual eyes, look up, you say, God does rescue his saints. God does keep them. God will deliver them. What Jesus accomplished on the cross did save them. They are forgiven of their sins. They did hope in a promise that was realized. And then you move forward to Hebrews 12, and it says, look, since we have this great cloud of, of witnesses, let's run the race and run the way, race doing what? Following the trailblazer Jesus who endured the cross and now has a crown. So, I see that, that he is not only praying for himself, he's praying for his enemies, and he is praying for those who will follow or are following in his footsteps. And then the last thing, I think verse 5, you see that foundational belief in verse 5 that I think is really important. But I am poor and needy, hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. What does a heart that is, a, a, you could say, and, and, and you do, some, sometimes I'll think, uh, and I have, I've, I've prayed for people in this way, and you probably have too, where I think they're, they've grown up in a Christian world. They have Christian things around them. They go to church. But they do not have a heart that has been shaped by the gospel. And this, this is why. You ready? They do not think of themselves as, as, as poor and needy. And they do not think of their need as like, I need him. I, I need him to rescue me. I need the Lord to rescue me. They think of it like we talked about that transactional thing of the gospel. They don't really even need. The gospel really is kind of like, eh, I mean, kind of need Jesus to save me. But, you know, I, I'm a big part of saving myself. You know? It, it's like I'm, I'm a big part of that. You know, I'm something, I'm a big deal. And, and it's like they're, they're not poor and needy. So the, the cross, it, it can be a little small piece on the wall of their living room. Right? Because it's, it's like I'll bring all of my human effort all of my greatness. And by the way, honey, take that cross off the wall and bring that with us when we get to the pearly gates. We'll throw that out there too. What do you think? And you'll think, as a result, that kind of person, their relationships to their children, to their spouse, to their coworkers to their extended family, to wherever they go, is I'm a big deal. I'm a big deal. I'm not poor and needy. I'm a big deal. God knows I'm a big deal, so he's probably going to let me in, and everybody else does too. I need a little Savior because I have a little problem.
This is not what David says. At the foundation and core of his being is I am poor and needy. Was David poor? Was David poor? Many times in his life, if you were to go visit Jerusalem, would you say, oh, look at that poor little king? You know? Was he poor and needy? You might say, no, he was helping the needy and taking care of the poor. I mean, what are you talking about? There, there is a heart attitude of poor and needy here. And he's certainly in that situation. And then there's also the idea of like, I know where my help comes from. One of the songs that we sing, I think, sometimes, and, and I grew up singing is, Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Then it goes on, Be thou our guard while life shall last, and our eternal home. Someone who is a Christian, genuinely, has come to an initial place of seeing their spiritual poverty and clinging to the only one who can save them. And someone who is genuinely a Christian will continue, albeit like it, it, it's a struggle, we go up and down, up and down, but they will live in a cycle of, I am poor and needy. God, I need you. I need you to help me. I need you to rescue me. This last line of this psalm reminds you of the first century church, which you can read in like, I think it's in Corinthians, where they would say regularly, Maranatha, our Lord comes. But also in the Revelation. Uh, we've been reading that. I know you're going to be like, what? You've been reading that to your family and family worship? We have. But not in a, hey, I, you know, look at the newspaper, you know, and cut something out for the kids and nothing weird been reading the revelation like you would read it to a child which i think is the way it was supposed to be read and i'm letting them see the images pop from the page and talking about it and one of the things that um it is it, and i just said like the other night like there's frightening images and there's comforting images in the revelation and i just want you to see them it's a story it's a story that's unfolding and you know when you get to um revelation 6 10 it says they crowd out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're crying out. And he said, you just wait. It's coming. It's coming. Revelation 22, verse 20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen, they say. Come, Lord Jesus. I think for us, when we look at this psalm, what we say to ourselves is we should be crying out. We should be in a posture of, I am needy. He is my Savior. He is my hope. And we should say that the Lord is ultimately, even in life or in death, whether we meet him uh, here or uh, in the moment of like rescue or we meet him in the ultimate rescue, Wherever we find that, that next rescue point in our lives, 
we should be reminded of this truth. He will ultimately address all of our enemies and set up his kingdom in such a way where we will, they will be in the distant past. He will wipe away every tear, every sorrow, every painful thing when he comes. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would be in the, the, the heart attitude would be we are needy and you are our Savior. Pray our church would be known by that, that it would not be a church where self-righteousness reigns, where judgmentalism reigns, where people are looking at others thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. But it would be a place where humble people, broken by their sin and in need of a big Savior, could come. And that other people would rejoice and be glad in the things that you have done and that you will do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.